Tēnā koutou no mai, haere mai, welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. Today, in a COVID-19 world, it has kind of snuck up on us, but New Zealand is days from the End of Life Choice Act coming into effect. The patients that may be accessing this service, they have been diagnosed to be dying by modern medicine. Modern medicine is not able to save them, it's not able to fix them, it's not able to cure them. The outgoing Children's Commissioner gives us his frank assessment of life for Kiwi kids and supply chain problems causing food chain problems. For example, our fertiliser has gone up by 70%. Uh, we're just going to have to pass those costs on, so consumers are going to be faced with, with even more spiralling price rises. We will have that story for you shortly, but first we begin with COVID-19. And for the first time in New Zealand's pandemic response, this morning, there are hundreds of people who are COVID-19 positive, isolating at home. It didn't come with a lot of fanfare, but for health officials, it has made for a significant switch. Monitoring at-home isolation takes resources, and the greater the case numbers, the greater the pressure. Already, there are some signs the system for monitoring at-home isolation is starting to fray. Shortly, we're going to speak with Health Minister Andrew Little, but we want to begin with the experience of one family who've tested positive for COVID-19, isolating at home in South Auckland. This is our sleeping situation at the moment. It's been a rough week in this Tāmaki house. After Lorraine and her partner both tested positive for COVID-19, Lorraine's partner has barely been able to get out of bed. He felt like... Uh, when he had meningitis and influenza, and it was like a combination. There was no space for the couple in MIQ, but with three kids at home, Lorraine initially felt well supported. The first maybe two, three days were, were pretty great with communication. They were ringing at least four times a day, and we, we got groceries like twice on the same day, and I was like, oh, wow, cool. But after initially testing negative for COVID-19, Lorraine's daughter started feeling unwell. And I had brought this to uh, the health officials' attention, and I said that I, I, it's probably that they need a, um, a test. And um, they said that they would send out a testing van. She was told the kids would be tested for COVID-19 the next day. When was that? Friday, Saturday, nothing. Sunday, Monday, still nothing. After three days of waiting, three days of reassurances with three symptomatic kids, Lorraine took things into her own hands. Monday. So Monday I, um, I thought, oh, well... I know I'm not supposed to be going anywhere, but no one's coming to test the girls. So I put them all in the car and I, we went up to the testing station and they said that they would follow me out here and they would do the testing here. They just had to put the girls into the system. We came back, waited, nothing again. After reporting her daughter's symptoms on Thursday, Lorraine couldn't get them tested until Tuesday. There's no words to describe it. It's, it's unbelievable. But things got even more confused. With her partner still bedridden, Lorraine requested a letter for his employer. And they said that they would send a letter through to be sent to uh, his boss. When it arrived, the letter didn't look right. Instead of having details about her partner's infection, it was a clearance letter. It said her partner had completed his period of isolation. Just four days after he was first diagnosed with COVID-19, 
The letter said he was able to return to his usual activities. Uh, no, he definitely couldn't because he was stuck in bed. He couldn't do anything. Lorraine called in to report the mistake. It was acknowledged by the Regional Public Health Service and corrected the next day. But this is just one of hundreds of COVID-19 positive cases isolating at home. So how much should we read into that experience? Health officials have warned throughout the pandemic response that a surge in case numbers could seriously test our health system. Health Minister Andrew Little is with us now live. Tēnā koe, welcome to Q&A. You heard that interview. It took days for kids with COVID-19 symptoms to be tested. Health officials sent out a clearance letter despite someone being bedridden with COVID-19. Is that acceptable? Um, no, it's not. And that's really disappointing that that has happened. Uh, I think, look, our, our public health service, particularly in Auckland, has been under huge pressure. This is an outbreak that has um, had numbers way beyond what was expected even you know a few weeks in, into it. So we're now over 3,200 um, cases. There's about you know, nearly 1,700 active cases in place at the moment. We've got over 600 people isolating at home. The reality is, I think, um, that we, we expect to be in this position probably in six weeks to two months' time from now. Everything has had to be brought forward because of the nature of this outbreak. Um, so it, it's disappointing that, to hear that some systems are not yet up running as well as they could, but uh, I'm, I'm confident that that won't be a common experience. Mm -hmm. I'm confident that the work that's gone into place now to prepare for people uh, to be able to recover at home is in pretty good shape. Mm. I, I should say, we realise there are distinctions between your role and responsibilities at the moment and those of Minister Chris Hipkins, but do you think this case is symptomatic of the kind of capacity pressures our health system is already under in this outbreak? We, look, we know that um, one of the reasons, the way we've managed uh, COVID-19 in this country right from the outset from last year is to keep the pressure off the, certainly the hospital system because the last thing we, we want and need is to have our hospital system overwhelmed. Uh, with this outbreak and with Delta, we anticipated that we would get to a point um, that uh, we would, and, and with vaccination levels now getting to up to 90%, that's the, the magic number we need to reach, more people who get infected with COVID will recover from home. They will still need support in home. And, and so the work in the last uh, couple of months has been about setting up that arrangement where people can recover at home and be supported at home. So th th this is, these are very early days in mm. that arrangement. Um, disappointing as it is to hear what happened to that family, but uh, the work is ongoing to make sure that uh, this ability to support people at home is as streamlined as possible and people are getting the support that they need. I want to stick with the capacity issue just a little bit longer. Numbers released to us by the Ministry for Health this week show that, that in September the county's Manukau District Health Board delivered only about 40% of its elective or planned procedures. What do you think of those numbers? Yeah, I mean, well, Counties Monaco has has been at the epicentre of this outbreak. They've mm. had most of the cases that have that have been hospitalised. Um, a lot of the cases that have needed ICU care as well. A lot of people turning up to the ED for other reasons, being tested and found that they've got COVID. Um, we know that COVID, like any like any pandemic, like any outbreak like this. Um, causes disruption to a hospital's normal functioning. Mm. It's happened to other Auckland hospitals as well. Um, and with lockdowns, that disrupts uh, proceed planned care and so on as well. So um, the way that the hospitals do this is now with that kind of length of disruption that particularly Auckland hospitals have 
um, have endured is that where they can, they refer procedures to other hospitals, um, and that is starting to happen. But uh, look, these things are disruptive, and mm. we've just got to make sure the hospitals have to make sure that people who are missing out on procedures are getting them, uh, you know, at, at some point. See, this is a really interesting point, and at sometimes uh, it has been perhaps absent from some of the debate around our COVID-19 response. Even if the majority of the population is vaccinated from COVID-19, a small minority of unvaccinated people taking up hospital capacity will end up meaning delays for the vaccinated population as well. To what extent is that concern influencing Cabinet's decision-making at the moment? Well, the, the fact that we, we're trying to avoid our hospital system being overwhelmed, that's why we've set the, the, the goal at 90% for each DHB. Uh, we need to keep that pressure off our hospitals because if, those, if, if we don't have... Um, a vaccination rate of the eligible population at 90%, and we see both vaccinated and unvaccinated people turning up, mainly unvaccinated people turning up to hospital in big numbers. That puts pressure on the hospitals. It means people who have planned care, planned surgeries, they get bumped out of the system, um, and hospitals have to reprioritise. So our health system has to be able to look after those who are sick right now and need care, COVID-infected COVID people, but actually people who have planned procedures, their hip operations, their knee operations, other procedures. We've got to look mm. after those people too because they are people who sometimes are offering excruciating pain as well. Mm. Um, but that's why you know, the approach we've taken to managing COVID has been about keeping that pressure, keeping COVID pressure off the hospitals and keeping people as well as possible these restrictions are tough for people, I know, but it is about making sure that you know, people are kept safe across the board. DHBs are playing a massive role in the COVID-19 response, even though they are being dismantled. How do you think they're performing? Yeah, I think they're, they're doing a great job. I look at the three DHBs in Auckland um, and, and Waikato now because they've got an outbreak there. Um, they're doing a great job in terms of that response because the, the, there's a lot of resources get, end up getting diverted to the testing functions, obviously vaccination and what have you. And this is a, a hospital system that is already under pressure because of vacancies. Um, with health staff and what have you as well. So I think they're doing a tremendous job in these circumstances. I think what we've seen is, though, that um, as we've been responding to the, the outbreak, and largely on a regional basis now, actually that sort of greater collaboration between different DHBs, both within regions and across regions, is really you know, making a difference. And people's mindset is shifting to th thinking, gee, this is a system for, this is a problem for the New Zealand health system as a whole, so we all have a role to play in helping out. Are they all performing well? Uh, look, I mean, there's, there's been differing levels of performance across our DHBs even before the pandemic. If you look at the vaccination rollout, you can see the differing levels of, of performance there in terms of achievement. I think some of the ones who were somewhat behind in the last few weeks are really starting to catch up. We still have the major challenge of getting uh, of increasing the Māori population being vaccinated and, and uh, to a lesser extent the Pacific population. They've really Their numbers have really come on. Different DHBs have taken different approaches and it's achieved different results. We are getting there um, and I'm confident that each DHB is, is fully focused on what is needed in terms of that response to the pandemic. But are, are all DHBs going to get to that 90% vaccination target? What should happen to DHBs that don't reach that target? 
Uh, look, there's a lot of support going into the DHBs to make sure that they do, and we know that there, you know, some DHBs have got hard-to-reach populations, and we've put extra resources in uh, to help them achieve that. We always knew that we'd get to a point where all those who you know, were very enthusiastic about getting their vaccination uh, would be vaccinated. Others who, just because of the nature of their life, their priorities, uh, where they are and who they are, meant that uh, they just they you know, hadn't got round to it or weren't going to get round to it. They're the people who we really have to make that extra effort to get out to and get vaccinated. Look, we're seeing the numbers are still consistently each day around the kind of 40 to 42,000 mark in terms of vaccination, so we'll keep up that momentum. But we have to get to that 90% level because that's what means that um, we keep our health system being able to function to do all the things we require of it. We keep people safe. Um, there'll mm. be those who, you know, at the end of this, won't be vaccinated, and um, look, they will just their life will be different because, in the end, as a government, we've got to do our best to keep people safe. If you're vaccinated, uh, you have a much less likely chance of getting infected, but if you do, much less likely chance of being badly affected by it. If you're unvaccinated, you're more contagious and you'll get more sick. We've got to protect people from the unvaccinated and that will dictate kind of the rules and regulations that we have around this. You said at the start of the interview, you and officials have been surprised at the speed of the growth of this outbreak. Has the outbreak made you reconsider whether now is the right time to be pursuing DHB reforms? Uh, look, uh, um, I'm conscious of that all the time. I'm conscious of the pressure that the system is under. But, you know, the overwhelming feedback I get from those working in the system, particularly in the hospitals, is, look, look, just bring it on. The stuff makes sense. We've got to be thinking of ourselves as a nationwide health system, not as 20 different health systems kind of all trying to plug together. So um, we, are, we are treading very carefully because we, you know, I know the pressure that frontline health staff are under. And we're doing you know, whatever we can to, to, to minimise that pressure, to alleviate it where it's needed. But actually, this, our, our COVID response has shown really the problems that the reforms are, have been set up to address, the, mm. the inequity in access to healthcare, for example. So we need, you know, we need to change that. And we can keep kicking the can down the road and say, let's put it off for another year, another two years. Actually, we've got to address this now because these problems are with us now. What's happening with the MedSafe approval for the antiviral treatments? Well, um, it's all sort of working through a pace. We've got the, um, we've now purchased the Monupiravir drug, which is used for those for sort of mild to moderate kind of COVID symptoms, 60,000 doses of that. Um, Pharmac has just approved Ronapreve, which is a, um, a monoclonal antibody um, for those with the more kind of severe symptoms. Um, and so, um, and Pharmac have got a, a, a range of others that they're currently considering as well. So this is for people who get COVID, who mm. need treatment, but the impact of those, particularly that Ronapreve, the impact of that on people has been dramatic in countries that have used it in terms of keeping people out of hospital, um, minimising you know, those, those severe consequences for people with, uh, with COVID-19. So. Uh, we want to make sure that we've got a range of therapeutic treatments available for people who do get infected. That's part of the, the ongoing care, including community care for people with COVID. Once again yesterday, we saw thousands of protesters take to the street in several marches around Aotearoa. How much concern is that causing Cabinet? These protests are growing. 
Yeah, and, and like people are rightly concerned. It's been a long time, many weeks, particularly in Auckland and, and uh, more recently in Waikato, where people feel their restrictions have, have really you know, imposed upon them. And totally, we get that. Uh, we, like everybody, we want to get to a point where we can start relaxing those restrictions. That's why we've set this target of 90%. But if mm. we don't do that, if we just sort of let everything go now, I tell you, a whole bunch of people would get sick. Be a lot of unvaccinated people will get very, very sick. They'll put pressure on the hospital system. Um, people waiting for other treatments will have to be cleared out. Mm. Uh, and and we, we cannot afford to do that. We've yeah. got to keep that. And I'm sorry for people who think that their freedoms are being transgressed, but actually... Um, it is not, you know, you're not particularly free when you're, you know, you're tied up in a bed, whether it's your own or one in hospital, barely able to breathe, and you're infecting other people. That's not an expression of freedom. The government's got a duty to do its best to keep everybody safe, as safe as possible. That's the approach we're taking, and that's what we're doing. Should police take a tougher approach in cracking down on these protests? We saw as many as 5,000 people gathering together, many without masks yesterday. Yeah, look, it's a tough job for the police, and you know they don't have the numbers to go around arresting five thousand people. Um, and you know it's always this. But each week they get bigger, right? The, the, the protests get bigger. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, look, and, and there is a sense of exasperation and frustration. I get that, but this is the way we manage this. Uh, this virus is about keeping people safe. This virus does mm. extraordinary damage to people. It does damage to people in the immediate term. There are some people with long COVID who months and months after they've had COVID and uh, you know, presumably recovered from COVID actually are still suffering symptoms. This is a very nasty bug. That's why we take the steps we do to keep people safe from it. No one wants to be, have the kind of restrictions that have been in place week after week mm. after week. No one wants that, believe me. Um, but we are acutely aware that if we don't manage the, this in this way and a whole bunch of people get sick, we overwhelm our health system, people who get sick won't get the care they need. And then you've got doctors and nurses having to make choices about who gets what treatment. That's mm. a pretty ugly place to be in. You know, our track record in managing COVID has been absolutely phenomenal compared to pretty much every other country in the world. One of the lowest infection rates, one of the lowest mortality rates. We've done pretty well and we've had to tolerate quite a bit too. We mm. want to maintain our track record in keeping people safe. That's what we're about. Minister, isn't it time that you or one of the other senior ministers involved in this response visited Auckland? Yeah, I mean, that's the, the, there's restrictions about um, getting up there and, and getting back out of Auckland. We've, we've got to respect Something tells me you'll get an exemption. As well. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think it's about um, not looking like we can kind of swan in and out and, and our life kind of carries on. Look, we are, we've got many uh, Cabinet colleagues and also caucus colleagues living in Auckland. We're in daily contact with them. Um, and uh, get the, you know, the sentiment that people are feeling, the frustration and exasperation. But actually, when you talk to people, when I talk to people in Auckland, they also get this is about keeping people safe. This is about keeping people safe. All right. After the break on Q&A, a week before the End of Life Choice Act comes into effect, are health officials ready? Hoki Mai, welcome back to Q&A. The End of Life Choice Act comes into effect next week, but with so much focus on COVID-19, some doctors have expressed concern to Q&A that the health system isn't adequately prepared for the new law. This morning, we can reveal the number of medical practitioners who have expressed interest in being on the support and consultation lists for End of Life Choice. Now, those are the lists of doctors and nurses who are willing to help 
if another medical professional won't do it. For context, there are more than 5,500 GPs in New Zealand. So far, we can reveal nationwide 96 doctors and eight nurses have signed up. Health Minister Andrew Little is back with us. Kia ora, what do you think of those numbers? Yeah, that, that's roughly about what we thought would happen in the first instance. We Earlier this year, we thought there was about 120, 130 had expressed tentative interest in being available to be involved in the scheme. We didn't think it would be huge numbers. You know, I think the medical profession have, have really um, been challenged by this. They've got the Hippocratic Oath, which is to preserve life, and uh, participating in something that brings life to an end is not something that comes naturally to a lot of health professionals. There are others who think that there's a legit, legitimate choice here, and this is a legitimate way to manage somebody in, in their terminal days. So, um, I'm, I'm pleased that, that everything that is required to be in place, I'm confident now, is in place uh, in terms of the regulatory oversight, the committees that the legislation mm. required us to set up, the funding that's in place to enable uh, medical practitioners to be available, and, um, and guidance that is there for, for those involved in this process. So I'm confident that everything is in place for next week. Are there sufficient willing practitioners to guarantee equity of access? So one of the things we put in place is that if, if you don't have access to a practitioner nearby or in your town mm. or city, um, that the practitioner somewhere else in the country is able to be available and to travel to, to see you to um, carry out their professional obligations in terms of the legislation. So we've set it up so that um, you will get access. Uh, even if you can't find a medical practitioner in your uh, in you know, close proximity to where you live. So, so to be clear, from November seventh, will someone who is eligible to choose to choose uh, is, will someone who is eligible for an assisted death who chooses an assisted death be guaranteed of finding a willing practitioner? There will be willing practitioners available, and if they have to travel, um, you know, two hours, three hours, whatever, mm. to to go to that. Uh, patient, then um, there will be funding to allow them to do that. To what extent has COVID-19 affected the medical system and health practitioners' um, preparations for end-of-life choice? Uh, I'm not sure it's made a big difference to it. I think obviously everybody very much focused on what is needed for the pandemic. But you no, know, life goes on. You know, uh, hundreds of thousands of people have other medical conditions that all have to be responded to as well. The system has still had to be available for them for that. Um, this is another now a, a, a procedure that has been mandated. Uh, the referendum approved it. The legislation is in place, and that is something that people have the right now to make a choice about and to have a medical practitioner available for. Work has gone in to make sure that the system is set up, ready to go and it will be ready to go from next Sunday. You were part of launching the new Ministry for Disabled People. Why is that ministry needed? Um, when we did the, the Health and Disability System Review, and that report came out last year, it, it touched on some of the needs of the disability community, but didn't go very far in terms of what might be done to improve it. Um, Kaimo Cipollone, uh, the Minister for Disabled, responsible for disabled issues, and myself, we commissioned a separate piece of work to go much further than where the Health and Disability System Review went to look at what is it, what do we need to do to give the disabled community more comfort that the support that is there is actually you know, doing its job. Mm. One of the things they came back with was, look, we are, 
We don't like to be seen as a health problem. We have a range of issues that we need support for. Health is one of them, but we actually need a whole bunch of social supports as well. And what they wanted was to see those supports in place, but not everything dictated through a health lens. So we've now set up the, the or we'll be setting up the Ministry for Disabled People. It's a working title only at this point. Um, so it'll draw from health disciplines, it'll draw from the social sector as well to make sure there is well-rounded support and policy development for our disabled community and, and with a further commitment to rolling out what has been in pilot form for some years now, this Enabling Good Lives approach, which is very much about empowering people, disabled people, to make decisions about what they need, them and their families, so that they can live good lives. So that's, that's the transformation that we're trying to head towards. Thank you very much for your time this morning. That is Health Minister Andrew Little. Send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. You can email us, Q&A at tvnz.co.nz. Next, Hospice's national body opposes the End of Life Choice Act, but one New Zealand hospice will become a host for assisted dying. They'll tell us why after the break. Kia ora we welcome back. When the End of Life Choice Act comes into effect next week, Tōtara Hospice in South Auckland will be a host for people who choose an assisted death. At this stage, it will be the only hospice in New Zealand to host End of Life Choice. And it's a position in stark contrast with Hospice New Zealand, the national body which took High Court action against the End of Life Choice Act. I visited the beautiful grounds of Tōtara Hospice's inpatient unit this week and asked Chief Executive Tina McCafferty why Tōtara has taken this position. Totara's position is that we believe that each of our patients is a unique human being, a unique individual, and as such they should be free to make the choices that are right for them. And because we deliver patient-centred care, where our approach is that the patient is always the driver of their own journey, we don't conscientiously object. Has it been difficult to reach this position? It's been a journey to reach this position. Um, this isn't something that occurred for us over the last 12 months. Um, there's been multiple bills in New Zealand, three before David Seymour's one, and then, of course, the High Court case with Lucretia Seals that was really, um, really raised uh, awareness of the ethical, moral, clinical complexity of this. So really since 2015, we've been working, debating, discussing. That really intensified, of course, in 2017 with the End of Life Choices Act. We looked around the world. We looked at what's happening in 28 jurisdictions and counting and why. And we looked at our philosophy and our approach, which is holistic. Heart, mind, body that sees the person. We looked at our values in that approach. The patient is the pilot of their own journey. And we looked at this really as another legal option, another tool in the range of tool options that patients have for themselves. And we decided that for us, because patient choice is paramount to our identity as an organisation, that we would support whatever way um, the, the act played out. It's interesting to consider the WHO's definition of palliative care. 
It intends neither to hasten or postpone death. There will be some people who say that, by definition, the choice in end-of-life choice hastens death. The World Health Organization's definition is a long and complex definition. It's actually a definition that has at least eight bullet points, at least three or four paragraphs. What it explains is really important things. Palliative care should be holistic. Palliative care should aim to work with the patient on their journey. Palliative care should look to enhance the quality of life left. Palliative care neither hastens or postpones is one bullet point amongst nine, and it's become the bullet point, the, the sound bite of the definition. Within a New Zealand context, it's really important for us to acknowledge that the application of the World Health definition in New Zealand says something really important, and that's that nothing in the definition sets out to prohibit the natural evolution of palliative care within a society, and it should adapt and evolve with society's choices. We're looking at the spirit of the definition. We're looking at the whole definition. We're looking at the definition in the context of the country where we are. And we are adapting and evolving. Of course, Hospice New Zealand, the national body, has quite a different position to Tōtara. Hospice New Zealand opposed the End of Life Choice Act, even took action in the High Court. Why does Tōtara and the national body, Hospice New Zealand, have such differing positions? I can't speak for Hospice New Zealand. You would have to interview Hospice New Zealand about their position. What I can acknowledge is that on all matters of ethical complexity, there's a range of views. It's really important that that range of views is, is respected and it's recognised, and that views are formed from, from different ethoses, different roots. I can also say that at Tōtara, um, we follow uh, true to our approach, which is that holistic patient-centred care driven by them is of paramount importance. One of the central criticisms of the End of Life Choice Act is that in some way it is a convenient solution to better funding palliative care. You receive about 60% of your funding from the government. You have to fundraise $4 million a year. So how do you respond to that criticism? Professionally, at Tōtara, we wouldn't consider it to be a convenient solution at all. Dying certainly isn't convenient for the people who are dying. Uh, the new services, new approaches being funded in healthcare for a, for a range of services, a range of matters, are nothing new. Uh, this sits you know, as something independent on its own and, and doesn't fall into how palliative care funding models are constructed in general. That's a whole other conversation. And how do you expect this will work in the coming weeks and months for the community you serve? It's a really good question and we've thought so much about that over the years. What we know is when we look to multiple jurisdictions, you know, 28 and counting, that less than 5% of people who access the right to do this actually do it. It's about a sense of control, a sense of, of 
dignity, a sense of um, what's tolerable as defined by an individual. When we looked at the outcome of that binding referendum, staggering, 82% of all people who could vote did vote and approximately two-thirds of them voted yes, it should be a choice for people who meet the criteria in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And so our community has spoken. Dr James Yap is the medical director at Tōtara. He's been at the hospice for 10 years. With patients with Tōtara, if they are wanting to access the assisted dying service, they will be working with one of our community care partners who will be a provider. And that could be a local GP, for example. And we're quite used to working with community care partners here in our community. It's, we couldn't do the palliative care that we provide in the community without our community care partners. And so when it comes to a new service like assisted dying, that's going to be another thing that community care partners will be providing. Do you think you personally will administer the medicine in the future? I'm not sure at the moment, Jack. I'm trying to keep an open mind on the subject. I need to learn more, I need to listen more, I need to see what happens with New Zealand society. So you might have to get back to me on that. I think the ethos that's, that I really believe in is that we believe in patient-centred care and we are supportive of patients' choice, so we are pro-patient choice. The patients that may be accessing this service, they have been diagnosed to be dying by modern medicine. Modern medicine is not able to save them, it's not able to fix them, it's not able to cure them. So they, they are dying anyway. And when, in my mind, a person's dying wishes is really, really important. They might be wanting to go home, they might be wanting to spend as much time with their family members as possible. So I certainly uh, practice in the way that a dying person's wishes is probably one of the most important things in, in their life and their whanau's life as well. As a doctor, do you feel any tension between end-of-life choice and the Hippocratic Oath? I think the Hippocratic Oath was, was conceived thousands of years ago. We're now in 2021. There's been huge advances in modern medicine over, over that time period, but there are still lots of things that modern medicine cannot stop from happening. You can't cure all diseases, you can't fix all situations, and so unfortunately people will still be dying. So when it comes to people who are dying already and if they are wanting to access the human rights, access legal options to take some control of their own destiny, because it's not about me, Jack, it's about my patient, it's about what they want, what they need, and about what their family needs. So I professionally have to remove myself from the equation at times and have to try and think in my patient's best interests. I just want everyone to know that we're not here to judge, that's not what we're trained for. We're here to, um, to help our patients and regardless of what people choose or what they, what they want, there's going to be no difference in the kind of care that we at Totoro will be providing to our community members. In the coming months, other hospices around Aotearoa will be closely following Tōtara to see how the law works in practice. You are in the unique position of being with people in what can be some of the most trying and profound moments of their life. Put end-of-life choice to one side for a moment. What, what makes for a good death? When you work in a hospice, 
regardless of what your role is, you can't help but have a transformative experience. It makes you question life and death. In terms of how that relates to our position, I can tell you that our experience is you have to ask the patient to know the patients deeply, to know what they cared about. Their definition of what's tolerable for them, their definition of what a good death looks like. I'll refer to one patient anonymously. I remember that we had one woman in our care who was fiercely independent, knew her own mind, had happened to be a healthcare professional. This woman had an advanced care plan that said that she wanted the choice to die on her own terms. She had it written into her will. She had had multiple conversations with her family who were clear about her wishes, and she knew what she wanted. And the great distress that she had is that at that time, she couldn't access that choice. If the End of Life Choices Act had been available at that time, that would have been a transformative end of life act for her because she would have been able to die on her own terms as defined by her, not by us. And that's what's centrally important. Tina McCafferty and Dr James Yen. If I after the break on Q&A. And at the moment, people are having trouble affording food. And if it was to go up even more, then they're going to have more problems actually affording the food. How logistical problems could soon have a massive impact on New Zealand's food supply. Tēnā koutou, welcome back. The global supply chain crisis is having a direct impact on the global food supply. That's mainly because of shipping and delivery issues, but now the cost of agrochemicals and fertiliser has shot up and compounded the problem. Farmers and chemical suppliers in Aotearoa are now worried about what lies ahead for New Zealand consumers. Here's Fina Owen. Fields of canola in South Canterbury. And what it does, we get the opportunity to uh, grow a really good crop of wheat afterwards. It's been a year of disruptions for arable farmer Colin Hurst. Machinery and parts have taken forever to arrive at our ports and another obstacle looms for the rural sector. For example, our fertiliser has gone up by 70%. Uh, we're just going to have to pass those costs on, so consumers are going to be faced with, with even more spiralling price rises. Most of our agrochemicals come from China, where many plants are closing down as China reduces coal supplies and now grapples with an energy crisis. And we're now competing for agrochemicals with big northern hemisphere markets emerging from lockdown, suddenly demanding more food and battling a freight crisis. Supermarkets are warning of empty shelves at Christmas time. If you've been to the store lately, you may have been met with scenes like this. Empty shelves. With chemical importers paying more, what does it mean for New Zealand shoppers? The big effect on consumers, well, there could be shortages. Um, there would definitely be price increases. It, it just has a significant flow-on effect. Right now, agrochemical importers are absorbing the rising cost, but will soon have to pass it on to farmers which potentially means that it will get passed on to the consumer, which potentially will mean that we'll have food price increases coming our way. 
Mark Ross heads the Agrochemical Industry Association, AgCalm. At the moment, people are having trouble affording food. And if it was to go up even more, then they're going to have more problems actually affording the food. October means fields of green and gold in many parts of the rural countryside. The gold is glyphosate. Many know it as the brand Roundup. It's used instead of tilling to burn off the cover as seeds are sown. Like it or not, our food security is dependent on chemicals like this. Internationally, for the manufacturers, they're paying up to 400% more for glyphosate for the ingredients. So at the moment they are absorbing it, but potentially that will be passed on down the food chain. Uh, it's estimated there could be price increases for products from 5 to 70%. The use of agricultural chemicals in New Zealand is constantly being reviewed by the Environmental Protection Authority. And glyphosate, which you'll see has been applied to the paddocks behind me, is just one of a handful of chemicals currently being reassessed. Until we have alternatives, it's really important that we ensure that those products are available. Um, in some cases we don't have alternatives and if they are taken away as tools for farmers and growers, we won't be able to grow food. So perhaps this is a good time to, to rethink our dependence on chemicals. Yeah, look, we're, we're involved in that and we're all supportive of greener, softer chemistry and making sure that that's available to growers and farmers as an alternative. Organic farmers are also feeling the pinch, with their organic plant applications going up in price. Agribusiness analyst Dr Jacqueline Roweth. In fact, with the organic manures that are being used in some cases in place of urea, they are going up more rapidly. Dr Howarth says when it comes to food, we have to accept we are entering a new era. We've been through a period when food has been accessible, that is cheap and available, and now we might have to get used to not having as much discretionary income because actually more of our core funding needs to go on food. Outstanding in his field, Colin Hurst urges consumers not to stockpile. New Zealand produces enough food to feed 40 million people, although most is exported. He's just hoping farmers will be able to grow it. Yeah, element of concern for next year. I just hope the factories can keep producing um, the right chemicals that we need to, to do because if we don't get these supplies, we'll be dropping our production even more. So, yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, it's an interesting old uh, time in the world. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly is. Fina Owen with that report. Coming up on Q&A, a conversation with the outgoing Children's Commissioner. But first, a flashback. Five years ago, when he was appointed to the position, this is how Judge Andrew Beecroft described his goals on Q&A. I'd like to say that we had, as a community and as a country, owned the problem and did our best, all of us, to get involved, that we have a world-leading, the best, legislative statutory framework for intervention where there is abuse and, abuse and neglect available. Hawkeye Mai, welcome back to Q&A. Today, October 31st, is Judge Andrew B. Croft's last day as New Zealand's Children's Commissioner. For 20 years now, he has been on the front lines of protecting and advocating for our rangatahi. Judge Andrew B. Croft is with us now live. Kia ora, thank you for being with us. Kia ora, Jack, thank you, a real pleasure. Before the break, we played a clip from when you started in the role five years ago. You hoped that by now New Zealand would collectively own its problem with abuse and neglect and that we would have a world-leading legislative framework on interventions. In your view, where are we? Has it happened? 
Yeah, I think we've made some real progress overall. I think as a country we have owned the issue of prioritising children. We've put children first unmistakably. I'm really encouraged when you look at, say, 17-year-olds in the youth justice system, 200,000 children getting free school lunches, smoking by adults where there are children in cars banned. Yeah, I'm really pleased. There's been huge progress, but there's much more to do. Yeah, I, I want to focus a little bit on a few different areas, and I'll begin with child poverty reduction. Mm. In 2017, the government announced a new ministry for child poverty reduction, and at the time, the Minister for Child Poverty Reduction said, I want to see urgent progress in this area. Have we seen the urgent progress this problem requires? Well, I think it really is a yes and no answer. We've got child poverty reduction targets, halving child poverty in 10 years. We're on track for that. We've had benefits linked to wages, so the gap between benefits and wages won't get any larger. We've got the free school lunch program. We've got an increase in benefits. We've got best start for children. There's a lot, frankly, that we would never have dreamed about five years ago in place. Great foundations, but there is more to do. And while we've made some small decreases and while we're on track for the 10-year halving goal, it's going to take some bold and courageous steps and it can't just be done by incremental small steps so mm. yes what progress we've made but no we've got so much more yet to do what sort of bold steps well it seems to me that income inequality and disadvantage is at the heart of risk and potential bad life outcomes for children unless we were to address that disadvantage, that income inequality, I think we're going to continue to see bad outcomes, particularly for Māori, Pacifica and disadvantage in health, education, uh, youth justice, justice corrections. I think we need to put very much on the table a national debate about increasing the tax take. Now, that's almost been an article of faith that we don't do that. But remember, back in 1938, when Michael Joseph Savage formed the welfare state, he called it applied Christianity. Others called it applied lunacy. We're going to need some real bravery to be like other countries that prioritise children to say, do we need to look at increasing taxes? It's not all money, mind you, but that's, that's a very good start. We need to expand free school lunches. Wouldn't it be great if we had targeted or free medical care for every child below 18? the sort of in-kind benefit. But the reality is, unless we have those sort of tough conversations, I don't think we're going to make the big breakthroughs in reducing child poverty. And when you talk about your concerns with, with income inequality, do you see that as being the main problem, or is it wealth inequality? Because, of course, we have a class of New Zealanders who own the majority of homes in New Zealand. We have seen housing prices climb astronomically over the last few years. Yeah, I think it's both and. And clearly the capital gains tax is off the table. I think that's a pity. I think in the 1990s when we sold off state houses and didn't build new ones, we're now paying the price. I mean, beneficiaries at the turn of the century, less than a quarter of their income was on housing. Now over 50% of their income is directed towards housing. So housing's been a huge driver for child poverty. And we've got to absolutely redouble our efforts to have affordable, warm, dry homes for those who are really doing it tough. 
that's all part of the big, bold, courageous steps that I talk about. In the last couple of years, Oranga Tamariki interventions, particularly for Māori Tamariki, have been extremely controversial. You said um, mm. in the past they highlighted deep systemic issues. Do you think those issues have been resolved? They've certainly been raised and they've been accepted and we do have a good legislative framework in place, as I hoped for when I started this role. It's not the law or the framework that is the problem, it is the practice. Because the framework allows, for instance, for bi Māori, four Māori approaches. And I think a revolution by devolution, transferring power and resources, that offers real hope. Bi Māori, four Māori approaches, I think, are the way forward. And for Oranga Tamariki to shrink, and for many social work, particularly prevention services, to be delivered by the community, at the community level. But make no mistake, the government can't opt out of the underlying responsibility to ensure children are safe. It will always be a government role to protect children in crisis situations. But they do it with Māori when it's Māori children, with the community. Look at Hastings. As soon as Māori were asked to be involved, everything changed. It would look so much different. We can do it so much better. The law's in place, the infrastructure's in place. There's a momentum, I think, a tidal wave of change in terms of delivery for children who are doing it really tough in homes and facing real risks. And I believe this time we have a second chance for a revolution and we'll do it. I'm really confident about that. How has this job affected you personally? Oh, it's the sort of job that is 24-7. It's a calling. It's been one of the genuine honours of my life. It's taken me to places in New Zealand and I've met children and young people have just been so honest and so straightforward up and down the country. I rejoice in the, often talk about the 70-20-10, 70% who really thrive and do well, 20% who struggle with adversity, 10% who are doing it really tough, chronically, intergenerational. I've heard from them all. On the one hand, I'm encouraged. On the one hand, they tell me when life is tough. That's, I guess, been the hardest job to hear, particularly primary school children. A girl telling me she finds homework hard at about age eight because she's one of a family of 13 in a two-bedroom home. Mm. And I think in New Zealand, we haven't just been negligent, we've been flat out in dereliction of duty for our children who are doing it tough. It's almost come to be accepted that it's something we live with, but it needn't be this way. We solved it for the over 65s. We had the chance now to do it for the under 18s. We blew that chance for about 30 years and what I guess has hit me hardest is to see the result of that mm. dereliction of duty played out in the lives of children for whom it's not their fault and for whom responsible adults could have done much better. Of course before your role as Children's Commissioner you were the Principal Youth Court Judge for 15 years so for 20 years now you have been bombarded by first-hand accounts and experiences <laughs> of some of our most vulnerable people in the most difficult of circumstances. What does that, what does that do to your spirit? Oh, I think it's a reality check and it's a wake-up call. And it makes me realise that the New Zealand of today isn't the New Zealand I grew up in. We are a country that's marginalised. It doesn't get me down, it doesn't overwhelm me because I think part of the role is to hear it and see it 
but not get so emotionally involved that I can't make good, incisive, analytical judgment. That's part of the role, that's part of the tension of both the judge and in this role. But heaven help me if I don't ever uh, forget how children are doing it tough. That's one of, I guess, one of being the standouts of our role, that we've heard from children, we've heard their voices, we've sought them out. The government's doing it now. That's terrific. We've got a world-leading child and youth wellbeing strategy, which no one knows about, looking at six domains of a children's child's life, health, housing, education, abuse and neglect, being connected, mm. respected, 84 action points. If only we knew about this. That was informed by children. That's the sort of platform, the sort of architecture that I think is really going to drive change in the future. And I hope as a country we can hold each other and the government to account to deliver that because there is hope, mm. terrific hope. And I just hope we can grasp it and grab it as a country and drive these changes and improvements through. Judge, when I think about all of the subjects you've considered and subjects you've advocated for over the last five years, there's one in particular I wanted to ask you about. I remember you made some very strong comments about the delay with which New Zealand has reckoned with the effects of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. I just wondered if you feel any sense of optimism about change in that space or if you think New Zealand needs to do more to reckon with the harm that alcohol causes our young people. I don't think we've anywhere near, as a country, grasped the enormity of that issue. We see for a glass dimly about neurodiversity generally. History will judge us harshly. That is one area where we have not made the progress. We've been sitting on our hands. We've had great action plans short on action. And I urge all of us, for all we're worth, to prioritise getting the help for fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and all neurodiverse issues. That's one area where I think we're behind the rest of the world and will be judged harshly because of it. All right. All the very best. Congratulations on finishing up and sorry for giving you an early start on your last day in the job. That's very unfair of us. That is the outgoing Children's Commissioner, well, Judge Andrew Beekoft. Komoto, that is Q&A for this week. Thanks for watching and mihi kia koutou i ngā karere. Thank you for your messages. Thanks to the Q&A team. Hey te wiki, we will see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.